0: As so we continue our time in First Peter, we arrive this morning at chapter three and some instructions for wives and husbands and to the discerning eye you'll notice something immediately it's unbalanced. It's not symmetrical. We've got six verses of instruction for wives, but only one for husbands. What should we make of that? Are wives six times worse than husbands and that much more in need of instruction? Or maybe Peter knows it would be a waste of time to write a bunch of instructions to men because men aren't going to read instructions anyway. Well, we're reading them today. Technically, I'm reading them. You're following along. But if you're able, would you stand while I do that? First Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. We might need some help on this one. Let's pray for that. Lord, indeed, we believe these are your words. We believe that even as we read them, you are speaking to us in the present moment. And you are speaking to us powerfully. Your inerrant and authoritative word comes to us with power. Power to change our lives. Power to draw us closer to you. Power to make us ready to be sent out into this world in which we live. And so would you bring your powerful word to bear in our lives this morning. Would you help us in our minds to understand what you're saying here? Would you help us in our hearts to be willing to submit to what it is that you're saying here? Would you be glorified? Jesus, would you be honored and lifted up? We ask all this in your name and for your sake. Amen. So please be seated. So we've got instructions for wives, we've got instruction for husbands, but Peter has not written a classic text on marriage here. Uh, This is not your garden variety marriage instructions like, I wouldn't necessarily call them garden variety, but Paul in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. That's kind of a classic text of marriage instructions. Those could be lifted out of that chapter and and handed to you, say, here, read this, and you'll get some good basics on marriage. It'll tell you what you need to know. Uh, These words that Peter writes, they're not quite like that. It's, It's not because of some deficiency in what Peter has written. He's just writing For a different purpose. He's he's giving instruction to these wives, especially in a very specific and difficult context because of what these believers in Asia Minor are experiencing. And it's as if he's assuming a lot of the basic stuff has already been covered, The, the basic stuff like Paul covers in Ephesians 5. He's sort of assuming that so that he might zero in on what's going to be most applicable to these believers living as a teeny tiny minority amidst a very hostile majority. And so I want you to keep that in mind. Keep this context in mind as we look at these instructions. Don't lose sight of that. Because the more we keep that context in mind, for these first recipients, the better able you and I will be to apply these principles and these truths into our context, which we really need to do. Uh, So I see three big things from this passage. All right, the first two are fairly obvious. Instructions to wives, instructions to husbands, and a third thing that has more to do with that context that I'm talking about. And Peter's goals for helping these believers really fulfill what it is he's been talking about for a chapter and a half now. Living such good lives, and by good lives he means lives that are transformed by the gospel. Living such good lives, living beautiful lives that they will silence foolish accusations. They will be recognized and seen by the unbelievers around you, and those characters are going to end up glorifying God. And so Peter's been on a mission. And since the second half of chapter 2, he's been showing how the gospel of Jesus does indeed change everything it touches. Peter's been showing how the most basic unit of society, the household, is dramatically different as a result of at least someone, anyone in the household coming to know the Lord, coming to follow Jesus. He started with servants. If even one servant in a household begins to follow Jesus, there's going to be a difference. There'll be a ripple effect especially as that servant, and if that servant imitates the Lord Jesus in submitting to an unjust master. So we started with servants. Now Peter's addressing wives and later husbands. Every part of the household can and will be changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. So those are the three big things, the three big areas we've got to cover in this passage, wives, husbands, and then this overall goal given the context. Now, I'm trying, I really am, to be a little better about not cramming too much in and being in too much of a hurry. So this morning we're only going to look at the instruction to wives. Right? Lord willing, next week we'll look at instructions to husbands, and we'll pick up that third and really, really important contextual piece. What, what's Peter trying to do here? Because that's what we need to be doing. Right? Um, so that's the plan. Now, as we begin to look at these instructions for wives, I want you to consider a question. Maybe just in the back of your mind, have it up and running while we do all this. What do we do when we read the Bible and we find instructions or commands that we either don't understand and we think, oh, how can this be a good thing? why does he want me to do that? That sounds terrible. Or we find things that, frankly, we just don't like. And we wish it said something different than what it says. They just rub us the wrong way, or or, or they cause us to hesitate, and we can hear the voice of our culture in our ears saying, this is absurd, Why would you believe or do this? That's barbaric. That's behind the times. What do we do when that happens? Peter's giving us a lot of opportunity to consider that question. Because as he's giving these instructions about how different the household is going to look because of Jesus, his instructions are not trouble-free. We don't necessarily understand out of the gate how this is a good thing. They may in fact rub us the wrong way, so what are we going to do? And if that's not a regular question for you, I'm a little bit concerned right if if in your bible reading and your bible study if in your listening to god's word taught or preached you don't fairly regularly come across things that you bristle at and say now wait a minute do i really need to do that then i wonder if you're really paying attention are you reading carefully Because God, through the Scriptures, is constantly confronting us. He's constantly calling us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow Him. And it is never without cost. So, I want you to chew on that as we get into some of these instructions. As we dig into Peter's instruction here for wives. Don't skip over the first word, likewise, likewise, comma, wives, dot, dot, dot. Don't skip that important connecting word. That's a clue. That's a clue that to rightly understand these instructions to wives, we need to consider something that came before. Following these instructions is going to be like something that we've already seen. And we know this connecting word, likewise, is actually doubly important because Peter's going to use it again in the instructions to husbands, verse 7. Likewise, comma, husbands, dot, dot, dot. All right, so. That's the first important thing. Wives, following these instructions is going to be like something that's already come before. Well, what have we seen recently that these following these instructions might be like? Look to the start of where Peter began talking about the household that's transformed by the gospel. That's back in chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject with all respect. So that's certainly a strong contender for what the likewise is talking about. Wives will follow these very similar instructions of being subject in the same way, with all respect. So that's a good first option. Another good option would be the final verses there of chapter 2, the the very last thing we read before we turn the page to chapter 3. The very most recent thing we've seen is some verses about following Christ's example. So, wives, follow these instructions with all respect and by imitating Jesus. Because I probably think both of those things are in view here. All right, so likewise, wives, and now we understand the likewise a little bit. What are we going to do? Oh, we're going to submit We're going to be subject. Oh, boy, here we go. All right. Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Um, Wow, there's quite a bit there, is there not? Where should we begin? How about we start with some irony How crazy is it that modern readers would read this verse and would say, oh, how chauvinistic that is. How primitive, how backwoods and uneducated. How demeaning this is to women. How it just strips women of their dignity. That's how many modern readers come to a verse like verse 1. But can you believe that wives in the first century very likely would have read this verse and felt honored, dignified, valued, slaves and servants, likewise, uh, see what I did there, um, uh, would have read the instructions that we saw last week, that modern readers would say, well, that's just cruel, that's, that's backward. Uh, no, those servants reading it 2,000 years ago, they would have been blown away at the honor that Peter was showing them. Of even being addressed in someone's writing. See here's the thing, Peter in his writing addresses directly groups of people that very seldom, if ever, got addressed. Why write to servants? Why write to women? They're not smart enough to figure these things out. They don't have the moral agency or capacity. That's how lowly they were viewed. They weren't deemed worthy of being addressed or or instructed. It would have been a waste of time and effort. So what Peter's doing here is really elevating these groups. by Peter's saying, hey wives let me offer you some guidance. He's, he's elevating these groups because Christianity elevates these groups to their created in the image of God places of dignity and value. And, and what Peter does by addressing them is, is beyond the pale of what anything else in Greco-Roman culture or thinking at the time is, is doing. So consider that context before you immediately want to write these instructions off. The call to submit, the call for a wife to submit, to be subject to her husband, like it or not, was already a part of the normal fabric of first century life. This isn't something new that Peter's uh, coming up with or that Christianity is coming up with. Peter's affirming something that's already a part of society, but he's going to put a distinctive Christian spin on it. Now, here's a little preview for next week. This is what Peter is often doing. He affirms what he can from culture. He changes what he has to. I think that would serve us well today. We're going to get into that more next week. Peter's definitely got the submission of all wives to their husbands in view. In just a minute, we're going to get to a a more specific thing of of wives submitting to husbands who aren't believers. But his instruction here says, uh, wives submit to your husbands even if some of them don't believe. So I think he's got all wives submitting to their husbands in view here. But note the submission that he calls for is one wife submitting to her one husband and that's a little wrinkle that's a little spin here because the society at large at the time would have expected a woman to submit to any and all men that she came in contact with so even here we see Peter narrowing things Peter scaling back a little bit what's biblically required of women submission yes to everyone no just to your husband so in one area he scales it back a little bit to which women are probably saying "Whew, that's a relief but then he's going to press it a little harder in another area where probably honestly the wives maybe wish that he hadn't pressed Because he says, submit to your husband, even if he's not a believer. Even if he doesn't share your faith. So this is a very specific wrinkle that Peter is addressing here. And this is probably why the wives get more verses. Because they're facing a unique situation as a wife, as a woman in this society, that the men weren't facing. The men had the power. The men had the authority. That's why there's more verses for the women here. What Peter is addressing here has got to be a fairly common situation that women in first century Asia Minor were confronted with when they came to faith in Christ. When they say, hey, I've I've decided to follow Jesus. I've heard the gospel. I've, I've bent the knee. I'm submitting to the lordship of Jesus but my husband has not. Now, that might not seem like a really big deal to you. It's not as big of a deal today as it would have been then. Let me tell you, it would have been huge. (sighs) Submission in first century Greco-Roman culture was tough. It went so much further and not in a good way here's some of the things. Uh, Wives weren't supposed to have any friends of their own. They could only share their husband's friends. And and I'm I'm presuming that that means basically the, the, the wives of your husband's friends, that's the pool that you've got to fish from when it comes to friends. But it's not just being limited to your husband's friends. You're also limited to your husband's gods. Whatever little g gods, whatever combination of little g gods he's worshiping, that's who you're going to worship. Women, you're also expected not to leave home without permission. Your place, after all, is in the home. So imagine, if you will, all the ways that a wife's newfound faith in Christ just causes problem after problem after problem when she says, hey buddy, I'm not worshiping your gods anymore. I'm following Jesus. And I'm not just adding Jesus to this list of gods that you got. I'm worshiping Jesus all by himself because he said he is the way and the truth and the life. And I'm going to be leaving the house fairly often because I'm going to go worship with other people who follow Jesus. And so I guess I'm going to be breaking another rule because not only will I be friends with those people, I'm in a new family with those people. See how highly disruptive this is? Think about the embarrassment that this would bring to the husband. (laughs) What would his friends say when they found out his wife is being so uh, disruptive and insubordinate? Keeps leaving homes, got all these new friends. He'd be a laughing stock. Think he might take that out on his wife? Think that might provoke some antagonism at home? This is part of why Peter tells the wife to submit. And it's a difficult instruction. Peter's thinking is see, look, your following Jesus has already rocked the boat quite a bit. It it had to. It could not rock the boat. No, you you cannot bow down to his little G gods anymore. You you can't worship them. But in every other opportunity that you have, in every other way that you can be submissive, do it. Do it. In the little things that don't matter, do it. Now, It always has to be said. There's always got to be an asterisk here. The call for a wife to be subject to her husband in no way sanctions or condones physical abuse or violence. Please don't hear that because that's not being said. But with that caveat... The instruction here for being subject is important. Where possible, wherever possible, Peter says, do it. Do it so that Christianity doesn't get quite so many harsh and sometimes crazy accusations. But also do it, because when you do, guess what? Some of those unbelieving husbands are going to be won over. They're going to be won over by your submitting. Your submitting has has an evangelistic effect. How great is that? Live in such a way, Peter's saying, that your husband's going to be glad you're following Jesus. That he's going to say, hey, if that's what's caused you to live like this at home, sign me up. I'm all for that. Peter says that a wife's submissive life, respectful, pure, can win an unbelieving husband over, he says, without a word. Hmm. Is that possible? I mean, just in general. Is it possible for someone to come to faith in Christ without a word of the gospel ever having been spoken or heard or read? Can someone come to faith in Christ just by looking at the, the beauty of creation? Just from seeing how submissive and respectful your wife has become. Can it happen without a word of the gospel? No, it can't. Paul's very explicit about that. Uh, Romans ten seventeen, right? Faith comes from hearing the message. Faith comes from the word of the gospel of Jesus. And even Peter, here in his own letter, he didn't mince any words. He's not confused here. He understands very clearly the role of God's word in someone being born again and coming to faith. He said very clearly, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, "...since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God." No, Peter is not confused. He understands very clearly that the gospel has to be heard or read, encountered at some point. And he's told us that, right? These men in question, they have heard. Presumably at the time that their wives heard and believed, they heard and did not obey the word. That's what it says in verse 1. We saw back in chapter 1 not obeying the truth, not obeying the word means not believing the gospel. But here's where the submissiveness of these wives comes in. It makes a little more sense when you think about, yeah, you know, they've heard the word already, they just rejected it. But now, now they're seeing it lived out day in and day out, it's on display. The fruit of the gospel is on display. The changed life of their wife is on display. And so the Lord uses it as a a means of, of, of plowing up, of breaking up that hard and stony ground of the husband's unbelieving heart. so that some of them, by God's grace, will stop disbelieving what they've already heard and begin to believe it instead. And they're going to do that as they've seen how beautifully it's being lived out in front of them. It's a difficult ask. It's a beautiful ask. It's got great potential consequences. So let's move on to this next one, this Prohibition of external adornment that we see in verse 3. Now, what does Peter have against a little beauty? I mean, come on. What kind of plain, ordinary, homely women does he want to see in church? Right? No hairdo's, no gold earrings, and apparently anything more than a burlap sack is just going to be too much. I don't think it's really that extreme, but I do think it's serious. It was absolutely serious in Peter's day what he's saying and why he's saying it. I think what's in view here is, is extravagance, things that are excessive, things that are immodest, things that are overly seductive and sensual. Things that are specifically designed and used to attract a man's attention and to draw his gaze. This prohibition is not unique to Christian teaching. Many of the secular moralists and ethicists, they included similar warnings for women to avoid these excesses so that folks didn't get the wrong idea of what you intended. Peter knows that for Christian women, it's just all the more important. I already mentioned to you how they're expected to stay at home and how these followers of Jesus are going to leave the home because they're going to go worship. They're going to go find their brothers and sisters in Christ and they're going to worship. So how much more important if they leave the home that they do so with a modest and a simple appearance, lest they add any additional accusations about what these crazy Christians are up to. If they go out all dolled up. right? Plus, Peter says, spending your time and your money on those external things, that's really a waste. Those things are all perishable. None of those things lasts. They're only valuable in the world's eyes. Focus instead, he says, on something that the Lord th- thinks is so precious, so valuable. Dress up the inside. When the gospel changes you on the inside, that is a beauty that never fades, that never falls away. In fact, the longer you wear it, the more beautiful it becomes. Peter mentioned specifically a gentle and quiet spirit. What beautiful evidence of the gospel's transforming power. Think about it. This antagonistic husband of mine, the one that doesn't believe the gospel, the one that resents the fact that I do, man, I'd just like to give him a piece of my mind. Let him know what a jerk I think he is. Or will the gospel produce in me a gentleness that I can't muster up on my own? And so I don't reply in anger or harshness. It actually produces in me a a quietness. And I don't think that this is silence. I think this is quietness like when you think of quiet waters instead of turbulent and stormy. I think in terms of quiet is peaceful, not not stirred up or, or anxious. How valuable this would be in the midst of a marriage like this. It's not something you're going to muster up on your own. It's something God's going to produce in you through the gospel's power. And I think the key here is verse 5. It's one of those things where I was wrestling with it and wrestling, "What is? how does this work? And then finally, every now and then, some words will just leap out of a verse, and I say, well, duh, it was there all along. Peter's saying, hey, if you'll focus on Inner beauty instead of external. You'll be following in a long line of women who've gone before you. They focused on internal beauty. They had gentle and quiet spirits. And they got theirs the same way. You're going to get yours. They hoped in God. That's the key. It's very similar to the mindfulness that we looked at last week. Mindful of God hoping in God. That's the key. I've, I've got this really difficult thing that I'm called to, and I, I don't really like it, and I don't understand how it's good, and I don't understand how I'm going to submit to this husband, even if he's making my life miserable since I started following Jesus. Well, I'm not going to hope in him changing. I'm not going to hope in my ability to endure and win him over. I, I'm going I'm to hope in my God. I'm going to hope that he's going to give me the strength. I'm going to hope that he'll give me the gentle and quiet spirit that I need. That, that he'll help me follow in Sarah's footsteps, footsteps. Now, did that strike you as a bit odd, this thing about Sarah? It did me. Sarah called Abraham Lord? What? Well, that's little L Lord, which is equivalent to sir. That's not big L Lord like only Jesus is Lord. Of course, we know what a big deal Abraham was for the faith, right? Everybody uh, wants to trace their lineage back so that they could say, oh, I'm a son of Abraham. You know, he's the founder of the faith. He's the one that God uh, entered into covenant with. We, we think about what a big deal he is, but we don't often think about what a big deal Sarah must have been at the time as well. What esteem she was held in and that women would want to trace their lineage back and say, oh, I'm a daughter of Sarah. Now, why were they held in such high high esteem? Why why do they stand out? It's not because they were so great. It's not because they had their acts all together. It's because God entered into covenant with them. It's because they were the very first ones. Abraham was the first one to have this declaration of righteousness, not because of deeds that you had done, but simply because he believed God, simply because he hoped in God. So anything they ever did that was admirable, worthy of imitation or esteem was only and always done by faith, by their hoping in God. And so that's what really gets us back to that original question that I asked you. What do you do? What do you do when you've got God's word or you're hearing God's word? You're saying, oh, how can this be a good thing? This sounds really hard, if not impossible. Why does he want me to do that? How can I do it? The solution is only ever, always going to be by faith. Faith that despite what the instruction is, despite how difficult it seems, faith that, no, our, our Father is good. He, he's, he's a good Father, I'm going to remember that. Uh, he, he loves me. I, I know that if it, it's coming to me, it's from him, it is, it is for my good, it is an expression of his love, even if what he's called me to is something hard. It's only ever always going to be done by faith, by hoping in God. And we'll pause there, pick up the rest of it next week. Uh, Father, thank you that you give as a gift the faith that is necessary to walk with you. You give as a gift the fate that is necessary to obey the hard things, to submit, to be subject to antagonistic, unbelieving husbands, to unjust masters, uh, in any variety of situations that we find ourselves in. God, grant the grace grant the faith, to continue believing your, your goodness and your love for us, even when we're called into hard places and called to do hard things. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please stand and let